Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, Janice Goff, has been interviewed on NDE Radio before, but today for a change, I've asked her to read her stories about four spiritual experiences that influenced her life. Janice and her husband, Kenny, live in Rimrock, Arizona, in the cottage portion of a straw bale complex that's my spiritual retreat when I need to get away to explore the big questions. Named Orphic House, the place is a straw bale cave with terraced gardens and a magic energy that's hard to explain. It's located near Montezuma's Well, the legendary birthplace of the Hopi people. And uh, Orphic House sits southeast from the red rocks of Oak Creek Village in Sedona. The location shares in the vortex system of the area with several mystical events reported right here in just the last few years. Events as tiny as the manifestation of a baby hummingbird, as stinky as a Sasquatch, as eerie as a hovering UFO, and as holy as a message-bearing saint. Constructed of gunite, sculpted over stacked straw bales with leaded glass windows and a rough-hewn ceiling, the house was completed in 1996 by visionary builders Jim and Pat Shea. Abandoned during the housing meltdown of 2010, it was rescued by us shortly thereafter and lovingly restored by expressionist craftspeople Janice and Kenny Goff, who introduced their own spiritual wisdom to the restoration process. Her garden plantings of healing herbs, mushrooms, and surprising edibles are much like gardens from medieval times, but with prophetic implications for our possibly survivalist future in a desert environment. While vines and leaves are sculpted into the exterior walls, inside walls feature accurate replicas of Native American pictographs along with statues and religious art from various traditions. As just one example, the shower stall encapsulates the Ojibwe legend of how Turtle Island, which is North America, was restored after the flood with a turtle as the base for Muskrat's task of piling soil on turtle shell until land emerged from the waters and heron flew the skies. A miniature cliff dwelling now occupies a space where the soap ledge used to be. But more important than the art and architecture is the spirit of the location, which Janice suspects was a spiritual center for Native Americans long before the structures existed. Folks who have visited have sometimes experienced STEs themselves, which is why I wanted Janice to tell some of the personal stories she will read to you today. My thanks to filmmaker musician Paul Peralt, a frequent visitor to Orphic House, for recording the four Janice experiences you're about to hear. Janice has entitled them Wrong Number Times Five, The Special Courier, My Pity, and generations of loving deeply. Enjoy. Wrong number times five. One time when I was younger, I got up in the morning and I found my baby was sick. I decided to stay home from work and dial the number for my employee. A lady answered, hello. 
I knew by her voice this was strange that I called a wrong number. I just talked anyway, so my name is Janice, and I think I've called a wrong number. I'm so sorry, but thank you for answering. That's okay, the lady said. She hung up. I sat there for a moment before I redialed my work, and it ran through my mind that something was wrong with this lady. I took a chance on the number I might have misdialed, and I dialed it again. (laughs) When she answered, I laughed a little, and I said, I'm Janice, the wrong number that called a while ago. I just wondered if you're okay. She hung up on me. Oh, yeah, I remembered I had to call in work, so I did that. I was still haunted by my wrong number lady. I called her back again. Good morning again. This is Janice. (laughs) She sounded irritated. I know who you are. What do you want? Well, I couldn't help hearing in in your voice was a little weak, and I just wondered if I could call somebody for you. Weakly, she said, I don't have anybody. I heard the phone hit the floor, some fumbling, and then a dial tone, and that I, I really got startled. Actually, shivers ran down my spine. My mind was racing what to do. I, I knew this gal needed help. Who was she? Where was she? Don't know. I called her back, and I gave her a name. I said, Miss Mary, and she answered, I'm Elizabeth. I wrote that down under the number that I had called, you know, and then I heard the phone drop in a dial tone again. So Elizabeth was no longer just a wrong number to me. Not only was this going to be the fifth time I had talked to her, but I also knew her name. So in my mind, we're practically family, you know, in that southern way of acquaintance. I called her back. Elizabeth, this is Janice. I wonder if you teach Sunday school at the Baptist church down the street from you. This is where her story actually started, because I'm writing down every little detail I can I can glean out of these partial conversations. I started to say things just so she would correct me, and I wrote all those little details down. I was hoping to get closer to who or where she was so she could get help. She didn't know anything about the Baptists. She went to the Catholic church close to the barbecue place, and I asked her a question. No, she had never eaten there. I told her about my sick son and asked her if she had children, too. Horrible things had happened for her, and all the family she had left was a sister, and she lived in um, assisted living in North Mississippi, so she had nothing left to live for, and In all of this broken conversation, her voice kept getting weaker, down to the point that her words were almost a whisper. I asked her what she took, because I knew by the weakness of her voice she had taken something, and whispering uh, in such a deep breath, she said, I took enough, and you'll be the last person to hear my voice. I said, Elizabeth, I'm okay with that. I'll just stay here until you're not. So tell me about your house. Small, red brick, noisy neighbors. And then the phone went silent. I panicked and hung up. There was only one Catholic church in the area. I grabbed the phone book, called it, and a woman answered the phone. A sister, somebody, I I didn't catch her name. Anyway, I told her my name and my phone number, and quickly all the information I had. She said, hold on, and I heard the phone go click, 
She had laid the receiver down on the desk. I'm thinking, is she praying? Come on. <laughs> you know, if, if this is a miracle, it needs to be quick. She came back to the phone and said, yes, we know Elizabeth. We'll call 911 because I don't have anybody here right now that can go over there. Well, I started crying and I said, okay, um, because I knew it was important in their faith for Elizabeth to have a priest there when she left her body. I went to hang up and then I heard the nun say, hold on, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be back until tomorrow. Elizabeth is dying. And then I heard a man's voice. And he said, I'll go over there right now. And I'm thinking, wow, that was a miracle as well. Okay. So I prayed for her that day while I was at home. I had her in my thoughts the next couple of days. Then my life moved on. So one Saturday, weeks later, I answered the phone. And it was that same nun from the church. And she said, Father wants to know if you could come that afternoon to the church and visit with him. Well, I did, and I was really nervous sitting there waiting for him to come in. It turned out he wanted to hear my side of Elizabeth's story. I just really wanted to know if he got there before she died. That's that's what I went there for, to find out if, you know, if he got there in time. And he tells me, oh, she lived all right. In fact, she's moved her sister out of assisted living into her home. Did I know that Elizabeth was an artist? Now she's volunteering to teach painting to children in preschool through fourth grade. So she can identify children who are gifted and will begin a mentoring program next year with other artists who are local for the gifted children she finds. Oh, wow. I was just sitting there with my mouth open. Now, he said, the reason he asked me to come was to tell me his side of the story. Well, I'd say this priest is in his 70s. So he's telling me the story about when he was really young, he lived in Italy and was being mentored by a priest there for many years. His mentoring father gave him a long rosary that was made by the father before him who made the rosary before he died. Wow. Okay, so I'm sitting there with with a a father priest who was being mentored by a father priest who was mentored by an even older father priest. So it's kind of like third generation father priest going on here. I, I thought I could keep up. I wasn't real sure. So when this priest was given this rosary, he was told many things. In fact, Everything he was told, he had long forgotten until now. He was told that in his lifetime, he would participate in an unusual miracle that would change the lives of many people. He didn't have to remember it, which he certainly did not, and he's laughing now, because he would know it when he saw it. Well, we're sitting there in this massive church, and these seats are, you know, really comfortable, but it seemed to me like everything got really bright. He began to tell me that he felt this experience with Elizabeth was the miracle he had been told would happen in his lifetime. He wanted me to know that this had happened all for him, that he had met his prophecy. It changed the way he studied, 
It changed the way he interacted with his congregation. But most importantly, it changed the way he talked to God. He took my hands and folded my fingers around this rosary. Tears were pouring down both our faces. He said, you're the keeper now. He asked me if I had ever seen the James Stewart Christmas movie or read the book. He told me that each one of us really has no idea what the world would look like if we hadn't been born. If a wrong number had not been called back five times, she would have died. Those prodigy children would not be supported in the way she would have loved and mentored them. The children's families and the world around would have missed their gifts until they brought it forward themselves somehow, if ever. He would have missed his prophecy, and he would have continued to live his sameness. Wow, this was all really, really big for me, and it's something that I'll never forget, and it reminds me one more time, not only how close we are to each other, but how much God loves each and every one of us so deeply. So, I've wondered, you know, did Elizabeth have a near-death experience, and she brought back, you know, all these gifts that she was able to live? I, I'd say she did. It was as near-death as you can get. Did she go to the other side and come back? I, I don't have any idea. I do know, though, she came back into life with a gift, fully living, revealing her own prodigy. That's as incredible a gift as any I've ever heard of. Yeah, we never know what the world would look like if we hadn't been born. But more important, I think, if we don't just be who we are, we'd never know what the world would look like. The Special Courier. This actually began in August of 2018. So August 8th, 2018, I hear is a special day in numerology. Um, it was considered to be the Lion's Gate, and I don't pretend to know what that really means, you know. I just know how I felt and how I would describe it. So a customer had called and was very upset about us not being able to schedule her. You know, we were plumbing contractors back then for 30 years here. Um, she was actually ranting and raving and all twisted off um, because we've always been there for her. Now we were too booked to even work her in, you know, on and on. So she tried another plumber and was totally dissatisfied. Her plumbing issue was creating other problems for her. And, I, you know, I just let her talk it out. Just as my balance was beginning to be thrown off, because she kept going on and on, I felt heat rising up the back of my neck. <laughs> um, and then something I call miraculous kind of happened, something etheric sort of like a mummy sleeping bag was pulled over my head and down my whole body. I felt enveloped and embraced. I felt warm and I felt loved. So that completely changed the way I was fixing to respond to this, this gal. What I said to her was, you know what, let's start over. I repeated everything she said and how she felt about it. She began to cry and apologize. I said I understood, and, and I did. I love my customers. They've chosen us to come into the sacred spaces of their homes 
And, you know, they trusted us to take care of them. In my mind, plumbing is just the vehicle of service. We talked some more, and she agreed to do the simple things I suggested because we couldn't get to her. And I asked blessings for her and her family. Two more calls after that, both of the same nature. I was still in the same flow that had come over me and was able to bring resolution to those calls as well. I think what I would say about Lionsgate is completion, not just any completion. I can only speak personally. I've been through rough training this year and last, and it's been like a never-ending boot camp. That's, those are hard words for me. Actually, some days felt like a concentration camp. It was so hard. What I realized today is that I've been prepared for this day with these calls my whole life. To be right here, right now, having these conversations, bringing problems to the level of opportunity. To be able to remind myself and others how special we each are and how we can support each other. Uh, that is, if we don't mess up another person's cry for help by feeling first, like I've got to defend myself. Lionsgate, to me, is a reminder that no matter how bad it seems, support and love is there. We have to be prepared to receive it and to give it. We have to be ready for it. At some level, you know, we've all suffered enough, and we're ready and prepared. We just might not all speak the same language describing it this way. I wonder if I'd have been wise enough to have recognized all this last week. Would it have changed anything in that day? You know, I don't know that I ever remember to use any amount of wisdom anyway. I mean, it's not a conscious thought. I rarely think before I speak. I think the best I can hope for is that what I learn becomes accumulative, that in some magical way it piles up and sinks in and it's available somehow. And then I learned a little more about how all this works. On Wednesday, August 1st, I'm on the phone as usual. Soon as I hung up, there was a knock on the door. I spoke loudly. It's open. And then a man came in the door. He looked like he was about 30-something. He stood in the door holding a brown legal-size envelope. He said, hello, I need a signature. Well, I didn't get up. I just asked him to come in. He handed me the envelope. I looked at the address and then looked back at him. Hmm, something is really wrong here. I looked at the address again, and I pointed to the chair at my table, and I said, Go ahead, sir, sit, sit down there. And he did. I told him this was not my name, and it's definitely not my address, and I didn't even recognize the street name anywhere here in Rimrock or Lake Montezuma. He didn't say anything, so for a moment we just sat there staring at each other, <laughs> you know. I think I was sorting in my mind where I wanted to take this whole event here. And eventually, I decided to jump in with both feet. I looked at him and I said, Something's wrong. Why are you here? For another moment, we looked at each other. He bit his lip. <laughs> then he broke down in sobs. He folded his arms on the table, laid his head down, and just poured out his broken heart in tears. And he began mumbling in broken sentences. He didn't know why they sent him up here, 
didn't know anything about North Arizona, had only been in the state two months, moving here from Indiana, took a job with this company, moved out here. The other guy called in sick, or he wouldn't be here now. His girl girlfriend of 12 years was hit and killed by a drunk driver in Phoenix two weeks ago. Mom in Indiana died last week. <laughs> didn't know she was sick. She had left him a letter to remember her like they had always been. Needed to be with family, wanted to be with families, didn't have enough to, money to get back, tired of driving, took exit 293, followed the road, and ended up here at some unknown address, lost. And, and I'm sobbing now because this went from confusion to bad to worse uh, and just left mystery in my mind. So, today, I found a young man at the door. I'm sitting here crying, listening and feeling his story of deep sorrow, pain, abandonment, and loneliness. I got up, I fixed him a sandwich, and found the last can of cold syrup mist in the icebox. He ate, talked some more, blew his nose, and began showing signs that he felt totally embarrassed. And he was getting ready to get up and leave, and just kind of like flee. Well, I had a little piece of Palo Santo wood on a rock slab sitting there on the table, so I lit it. He breathed in the smoke, and I saw him relax. I went and got my sage, lit it, and saged this boy good while he sat there. Front, back, feet, head, hair. He shrugged his shoulders and blew out a deep breath like, I'm so wore out, whatever. I surrender. I surrender. I could tell he wasn't acquainted with sage. He breathed it in deeply, but there was so much smoke, he didn't have much choice. The The room was actually blue from all the smoke. I told him the smoke would take his prayer straight to the heavens, that he had friends there in high places, to tell them what he wanted and needed. And he did. He started talking out loud in what I call prayer. He asked for help getting through all this. He promised that he would do his best to be kind to others and do his best to listen in his heart for direction. Breathing in deeper and calmer, he did then get up to leave. I suggested that he call his company and get a better address. Well, he left with clothes smelling heavily smoked. The phone rings again, and I'm back at work. I didn't have any time that afternoon to think about it all. The evening after Kenny took a shower, I told him about the strange visit. Kenny's comments, then he made me realize this boy's story was way bigger than anyone could have planned. Somehow, however it happens, this whole trip had been laid out for this boy. He was being watched out for. I wonder what's in the future for this young man. Would I read his story in Reader's Digest? Surely he's going to touch a lot of lives and make differences somehow. And maybe even mom, his mom who had left her body, had a hand in all this. Well, that was in August of 2018. And here it is now, several months later, it's Christmas time, and oh my goodness, will I ever cease to be amazed. Here it is, the dawn of Christmas Eve, and the most amazing gift has come through the phone lines and into my soul. It was James. He was calling from Indiana, so excited that he had found found us and found, you know, how to get a hold of us. His words were tumbling out faster than I could keep up. Oh, gosh, we laughed. We cried. 
and I realize I have to write the rest of his story. James left here smelling like smoke and more hopeful. He called his company. They gave him the correct address. He ended up in North Flagstaff. He knocked on the door, and a Native American woman answered. He stuck out the envelope and said, I'll need a signature, ma'am. She sniffed while looking at him up and down and said, Son, come in. You have more waiting for you than a signature. <laughs> he, he just kind of shook his head. This whole adventure had been really out of his realm of understanding. He, he did go in, and she asked him to sit down. She needed to make a phone call. He, he protested that he really needed to go to get back to Phoenix before it got too dark. She seemed to ignore him. He began to be uncomfortable. She offered him Indian bread, which he refused. The front door opens, and in comes four Native American men. And he's sitting there now. He got scared. The older man on the couch sat next to him and said, Son, we were told you would be coming and to prepare to help you heal. When James broke down, started to cry again. The other three men went out the back door. The older man said, Your mother said that only something really unusual would get your attention and that she is watching over you. She loves you very much and understands your suffering. Please let us help you. Crying, crying, sobbing, James nodded his head. Okay. They took him out back where an odd structure stood, a dome-type of tent covered with blankets. There was a fire that evidently had been built hours before because it was now a pile of hot coals. In the coal bed were a bunch of large round rocks. The older Navajo man explained to James that this was a sweat lodge. It's where we pray. We knew you were coming, so we prepared it earlier in the day. Your smell of sage let us know it was you that we were waiting for. Now, sir, strip down. Go ahead. Underwear, socks, everything. All the men stripped down and entered the lodge. He couldn't tell me everything about the ceremony except that God spoke to him as he prayed. He felt family there he'd never met that lived generations before him. For hours, he sweated all the sorrow, hate, confusion, and loneliness out of him. When it was over and the moon now preparing for the sun to rise, he came out of the lodge exhausted. The women already had food and a bed ready for him, and he slept instantly and peacefully through the day to the very next morning. By this time, his phone was blown up with calls from corporate. He told them that he would be heading back down shortly would be returning the car and that he quit. His supervisor, realizing they had sent him on an unusual errand, said he understood and that he would have a stimulus pay ready for him. And that was another miracle. Well, he returned to Phoenix. He picked up his money. And now he's got money for a bus ticket. And he went home. The family, and this was so amazing to me, the family had yellow ribbons tied on the fences and trees, just like the song, and were all there to welcome him. He was going to sing in church on Christmas morning, because on the way back to Phoenix, after that sweat lodge, he found he all of a sudden had a, a singing gift. <laughs> oh my gosh. We laughed and we cried on the phone. I so love happy endings. 
and for James and his family, it's on the beginning. How precious for me to be able to record the rest of his story for him. December 24th, 2018. This story I had labeled My Pity. Um, my son Matthew had an event happen that just totally destroyed us. And um, one day I was sitting out front and I had, I was crying my eyes out. My heart was so broken. And I was asking God if, you know, wasn't there any extra miracles left around for we could have a couple of them? And about that time, my sister Joanne called. And I told her the whole story of what was going on in my heart. And after we hung up, um, I was sitting by my pond out front. And underneath a uh, piece of flagstone, I have a St. Joseph. So I went through it again, and I was pretty much, I had cried my heart out right there and realized I hadn't spent much time with the grief of our current event. I had just, you know, I just really had focused on my broken heart and all the trauma that, you know, my body was going through because of the event. And anyway, with Joanne, I had told her how terrified I was for for him and how he loves so deeply. So Joanne and I had a very extensive conversation all, on all that. And then again, I poured it out to St. Joseph. And at the end of all this crying and uh, wallowing in my pity, basically just pouring it all out, I didn't feel any better. And all of that crying and sitting there, I, you know, I probably sat there for maybe an hour or more. Um, it took me right down to asking if anything in my life had been of any worth. And it's amazing to me how when you stay in your point of pity, eventually you're going to come down to yourself. And what's left when you get to that point is asking if your life has any worth. Um, I ran through in my mind all the things I had done for and with my boys when they were little. And all of that had to do with besides making they, you know, were safe and had food. And did any of the rest of anything I tried to be in their life matter? So basically it came down to I blamed myself in every way I knew how. And that didn't make me feel any better. I finally settled on saying to myself that we've always been taken care of. So, see, all of this goes in a cycle. You start at one point, and your pity takes you down into a next step, and, you know, you already know what's coming next. You finally get down to blaming yourself, and then how are you going to bring yourself up out of that is, you know, remembering that you've always been taken care of. And I never doubted God being there. And I also at that moment voiced, I don't want to leave this life and feel like I haven't done enough to support other people, my family, my friends or acquaintances. Well, when I got to that point and I really felt like I was coming up out of my deep pity um, that I had never done enough, the phone rings. 
So there's a Mexican gal on the other on the other line on the other end of the phone, and she's speaking with broken Spanish, and I couldn't make much out of what she was saying. I thought I heard her say four year ago, and I'm trying to think real fast in my mind um, of a Mexican family that we might have service plumbing for four year ago. Finally, you know, I apologized. I couldn't understand her. And then another female voice came on the phone. She said, I'm Marie. I'm Maria's youngest daughter. And she began to tell me that my father came to your house four years ago and picked up a silver Dodge truck on a big flatbed trailer. Oh, yeah, I remember now. I remember now. Yeah, yeah. So the driver spoke very little English, and the rider that was with him, the other man, he didn't speak any English at all. And I, and she says, yeah, yeah, that was him and his friend. You had fixed them a bag of lunch with chicken salad sandwiches, <laughs> chips, Coke, and cookies. You asked them if they wanted to eat on the way or come in. And I said, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And before the car hauler came, I got an inspiration of two hungry men. I told her this. And we both laughed. She explained that the truck company did not give them any money for food or water and only fuel. Our family didn't have any money to send with them when they left early that morning. So they were hungry, and the money that you had put in each of their bags brought, bought them food that evening before they got home. And then she told, I, I said, where's home? She said, down in Yuma. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, geez, that's like five hours from us. She said, yeah. She said they leave very early to be by 3 o'clock every morning to drive to Phoenix to pick up the hauler truck. And then the company sends them all over the state to pick up vehicles. <clears throat> well... She went on, I, I was understanding then why what I was inspired to do kind of clicked in and, you know, helped them out. So, but she goes on to tell me that my father died last week. He was the driver. In his last directions to the family, he wrote that he wanted Mama to contact you and thank you. I found your business card in the box by his bed. He said, you treated them like they were Jesus's angels and to tell you <laughs> that they are not, but that he has prayed in mass for you and your family every Sunday and that our family would continue to say rosary for you and ask St. Saint, Saint Peter Julian to assist you and that our children have each been told to say rosary and light candles in mass for you. For the rest of their lives. Well, I began to cry and sob, and so did she. So we just cried together for a little while on the phone, and I assume it was for each of our own reasons. When we hung up, I cried some more, but also just sat speechless. My gosh, how selfish of me in, in my own pity. Must have shown God how unworthy I really felt, and surely how my unworthiness does not honor him. Whew, boy, these memories are really hard. 
so much so that I needed to be shown God's love for his people and needed to be shown how we never know what that small kindness does in our life or ripples into others. All I could do at that moment was ask forgiveness. I sat there in great thankfulness, humbled. After all I'd seen God do in our life and others, my pleading was like an act of unbelieving, so much so that I had to be touched so deeply to be reminded. I will never cease to be amazed. I will always look for God in all things. I promise I will. Please forgive my lack of faith that brought me down to being pitiful. I ask for blessings for her and her family. And, of course, I'm crying my eyes out again. So, some months later, day after day, that call still brings me to tears. I tried to rationalize all that so that I could move on, but you know, saying that I was just in the right right time and they needed lunch, so I had it ready. And, you know, things that lightened up the depth of love that God has for us. This man on his deathbed was with us still on his mind. Well, I've cried through telling Kenny and some of the family members about this story. And at the same time, every cell in my body was wanting to scream out, I'm not worthy. And then the thought that his grandchildren were given instruction to carry his request on for us for the rest of their lives. I mean, this was really all overwhelming for me. My mind flip-flops in and out of this conversation. I do certainly believe that my monkey mind is scrambling to justify and give reason to why this happened to me. In a week or so, I'll breathe a normal breath without so many tears, and through this know again how much more specific can God get to let us know we are covered. He's got our back. We don't have a clue of the outcome of the inspirations we receive, but we know we have not been forgotten. So, I've labeled this story, Generations of Loving Deeply. Well, this is all about when I was growing up, and a lot of the old folks had a lot of the little tin pictures that photos used to be printed on, and they were hanging on the walls and all that. So, anyway, we were surrounded with pictures of these older generations, and there was always a story that went with whoever that was, and I guess us young folk were supposed to remember who those people were instead of finding them in boxes and throwing them away because we didn't know who they were anymore. Well, something about that person in that picture would always get told over and over. I was so small back then, and I had to stand on my tiptoes to look at these old family photos In my mind, I can still see the tiny little black and white photo of my Aunt Jessie. She had white hair, she was skinny, and she was tall. She was standing on the beach, leaning forward a little bit. She had just blown a kiss to my Uncle Frank, and now her tiny little hand was frozen in time in a goodbye wave. 
He was out there on that shadowy horizon in his shrimp boat. Her thin cotton dress, I was told, was blue, and it had tiny little flowers on it. Jesse and Frank had been together 56 years. They had married young. Jesse had only three dresses. She wore this one to blow a goodbye kiss to her sweetheart because it matched the color of the sky. The color, as the story goes, was a perfect match to the same hue of blue in her heart every time he left. Three days later, after this photo was taken, there was a big storm out in the Gulf. It took Uncle Frank's boat best they can figure. Another shrimper came in from the Gulf. He told of seeing Frank's boat through his eyeglass. The top of the cabin was just going under. He said he anchored until the winds and the waves obeyed God's will and made it possible for him to get to where he thought Frank's boat was. Floating in the water, he saw something yellow. He fished it out with a hook pole and saw white tatting on one fold of the material. That was all he found besides some fishing poles floating and some trash. He didn't understand the yellow thing, but he brought it back all wadded up in a wet, oily, salty knot. With his head bowed, he placed it in Jessie's tiny hands. It was her yellow dress, one of her three. Frank had taken it with him to sleep with, to be close to her and smell her on his pillow. Jessie spent the afternoon in the sun humming and washed it up. She went to bed that night in that yellow dress with stockings and her best little shoes on, but she didn't wake up. The family found her the next morning, and she had a rolled-up piece of paper in her hands. Aunt Claire carefully slipped it out of her fingers to read it. And it said, Frank, it's me, Jessie, in my yellow dress. The women in the family prepared Jessie to meet Frank, leaving her in that yellow dress. Stains of salt water and diesel oil floated over the cotton print, just like it did over the waters that moved and parted with Frank's last breath. Knowing Frank and Jessie, and knowing what each meant to each other, there were no words needed. The women just got to work. They took Frank and Jessie's only two sheets and Jessie's other two dresses and Frank's only two shirts, and put together a beautiful double wedding ring quilt. They wrapped Jessie snugly in this quilt and placed her in the coffin. In Jessie's hand, there was a piece of rolled-up paper that said, Frank, it's me, Jessie. I bring everything we need. Janice, thanks so much for sharing these four STEs, and to Paul for recording them at Orphic House. Orphic House has been described by visitors as a spiritual museum, but its timeless nature makes visiting there a now experience that brings out the creative in those staying there. It's a place to write, make music, meditate, and pray. For those with writer's block, it even offers a stained glass portrayal of a monk, his raised sword covered in vines while the savage, immortal dragon of time steals up from behind. About that window, I've admitted, it motivated me to finish my novel Beneath the Phoenix Door and to start my book in progress on chaplains and NDEs. By the way, the Phoenix Door on the novel's cover is actually the Orphic House door to the kitchen. To contact Janice about this show or about Orphic House, please email Janice Goff at j 
janicegoff24 gmail.com. That's J-A-N-I-C-E-G-O-F-F at gmail.com. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone, for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.